Well, today we start a new series on the doctrines of grace, but this will actually tie in, I think, fairly well with what we just spent some time looking at, which were the Reformation solas. And um, so hopefully you have been enjoying those uh, 17 ways in which we can glorify God and visiting those from time to time. I hope that's uh, helpful to you. But an overview today, uh, before we before we actually plug in and start uh, uh, working out each of the, the different points of the doctrines of grace, I'd like to begin by a quotation from uh, Charles Spurgeon. It's on the top of page one of your handout. And I will apologize at the beginning. There's a couple of typos in here. I'll have to uh, speak with my proofreader uh, and have my proofreader be more careful uh, in his work. But uh, Charles Spurgeon and the Doctrines of Grace. This actually came from a message that, uh, that he gave uh, at the inauguration of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Uh, and his first message uh, there in that pulpit had to do with the Doctrines of Grace. So he said, I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God and his dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Nor can I comprehend a gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus. Such a gospel, and you could put that in quotes, I abhor. Um, Now, a a couple of notes. Number one, when he says that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism, I I want to be, be clear. When, when someone shared the gospel with me, they gave me a simple tract, and it was called This Was Your Life, and it did not outline the doctrines of grace. It did not get into historical theology or, or the, the doctrine of Calvinism, per se. It, it pointed me to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it outlined the fact that I was lost before a holy God, and, and it pointed me to the need to turn to Christ as my only hope of salvation. But... What what Spurgeon is saying is that to rightly apprehend what God has done in his saving work, we need to understand what some people will call Calvinism. Now, he's going to qualify that in a moment by saying that he's not a fan. And I'm I'm sure, by the way, that John Calvin would not have been a fan of attaching his name to a body of doctrine. What we teach is rooted in Scripture. So as we delve into each of these five points, today we'll be touching on a number of scripture passages, but I can assure you as we turn to each of the doctrines of grace, we will be looking in detail at at the scripture. Our authority is the scripture, and that's why we looked at in the Reformation solas, uh, sola scriptura, the scripture alone is our authority for faith and practice. So today is an overview, but, uh, but then he goes on to say, uh, the Calvinism, and, and I ad- added it the editorial note, better the doctrines of grace, and, and I'm not going to be referring to Calvinism, I'm, I'm going to be talking about the doctrines of grace, has its footing not in the Reformation of the 1500s, but in the very pages of Scripture. And I think that's the key uh, to understand that we will, 
be founding and, and uh, rooting all of the conclusions that we, we have based upon what does the scripture say. And we'll be looking at a number of passages as we go through. But as I mentioned a little bit earlier in Spurgeon's very first message at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, uh, he preached an overview of what we call the doctrines of grace. Uh, you may have heard TULIP uh, along the way. And uh, so then he assigned a number of pastors to take the points uh, relating to the doctrines of grace and expound them. And, of course, they, they went to the scriptures to substantiate what they were teaching. But uh, the so-called doctrines of grace, um, uh, there's an acronym, and we'll talk about why it's TULIP, uh, but, but total depravity. And, and actually, I, I think there are sometimes better phrases that we can use. I, I, I like total inability. It is total. We are... Um, radically uh, corrupted because of the fall, uh, but I think total inability is, is, is probably a more apt uh, description. Unconditional election, uh, I, I'm not a fan of limited atonement. That, that word, uh, that phrase, uh, I think definite atonement is it's much more, or particular redemption, those would be other terms that you could use, because limited has a connotation that somehow there is only so much that the, the atonement accomplished when, in fact, it, it accomplished far more than those who would hold to so-called unlimited atonement. And Spurgeon actually made that point in one of his, one of his sermons. Irresistible grace, another term would be efficacious call. And perseverance of the saints, actually, I, I prefer preservation of the, preservation of the saints. Uh, but then Spurgeon went on to say uh, there is... No soul living who holds more firmly to the doctrines of grace than I do. And if any man asks me whether I'm ashamed to be called a, a Calvinist, I answer that I wish to be called nothing but a Christian. And, I, and so I think all of us here would probably resonate with, with that. He said, but if you ask me if I hold to the doctrinal views which were held by John Calvin, I reply that I do in the main hold them and rejoice to avow it. Um, so he, he was not necessarily a fan of the word Calvinism, and I'm not a fan of that term either, to be honest with you, because it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I'd, I'd rather just say, what does the scripture teach, and then, and then root our convictions uh, there. But um, he goes on to say, uh, in relating to this, he said, the doctrine which is called Calvinism did not spring from Calvin, and we need to understand that. Um, it, it happens, it will be looking at what we would call historical theology. We're, we're going to be looking at the, the development of theology uh, over the centuries, and there were different battles that took place, uh, some of them in the 1500s, some of them in the 1600s, and, and uh, they're very important. And, and so what we are looking at today actually was a result of people saying, what does the Scripture really say? What does the Scripture teach? But he says, a doctrine which is called Calvinism did not spring from Calvin. We believe it sprang from the great founder of all truth, in other words, from God's word itself. We use the term then not because we impute any extraordinary importance to Calvin's having taught these doctrines. We would just be as willing to be called by any other name if we could find one which is better understood. And, and I would agree with that. So all of that said, uh, I just wanted you to know that, that Spurgeon uh, was quite a a proponent of the doctrines of grace, and, and he actually, I think it's an interesting point that when he started his ministry at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, that he started, you know, with the very doctrines of grace and, and began to teach on those. So uh, the, our basis for, for convictions, I, I can tell you at one point I wrestled with 
do I hold the so-called doctrines of grace or TULIP uh, because they're logical or because they're rooted in Scripture? Uh, I was not personally taught all five points. Matter of fact, I was what one would call a four-point Calvinist for a, a period of time. And the, the seminary that I attended, their, their doctrinal orientation very specifically is what we would call a four-point um, a Calvinistic point of view. Uh, their, the point of demarcation would be on uh, the atonement. They, they, they taught, and still do, the, the unlimited atonement. And, and actually I came to a limited or, or definite atonement point of view while I was uh, at that particular seminary. And it was because I was studying under a fellow named S. Lewis Johnson. I don't know if you've heard that name or not, but he was very helpful uh, for me. But uh, but we that I wrestle with do I do I have my convictions because they're logical and and the answer to that is they're logical but I don't hold those convictions because they're logical I hold them because the scripture in my view clearly teaches them but they are eminently logical and they are logically consistent and I would suggest and, and contend that they are so logically consistent that they do all hold together and that to differ from one of them is essentially to 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 really have a crack in the foundation with the other four um, and where the point that really began to affect me was when I started to look at total inability and I, and I said if I really understand what's going on correctly with the nature of the fall and, and man's inability to respond to spiritual things and that, that really made a big difference personally in my convictions on the doctrines of grace. And, and so that's how it was uh, in my life. So he says, I, I shall not blush to preach before you the doctrine of God's divine sovereignty. That, that really is the key point. If you're underlining or, or saying, what, what really are we focusing upon when we're talking about the doctrines of grace? It's absolutely clear that what we're looking at is the sovereignty of God over all things. And we are, we are not talking about the autonomy of man. Um, as a matter of fact, the, when we look at the doctrines of grace, we, sometimes you will hear the expression, a high view of God and a low view of man. I, I certainly hold to a high view of God. I'm, I'm not a personal proponent of a low view of man. I'd rather say a biblical view of man because man is made in God's image and, and the height of God's creation, and, and so I'd rather say I believe in a biblical view of man, and, and it, that leads to a high view of God. Um, but uh, but he goes on to say, I shall not stagger to preach in the most unreserved and unguarded manner the doctrine of election. Uh, that That's God's sovereign choice um, as to who he will bring to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I shall not be afraid to propound the great truth of final perseverance or preservation of the saints, and that's God's sovereign keeping of his uh, children. I shall not withhold the undoubted truth of Scripture, sola scriptura. That's not one of the doctrines of grace, but it certainly underlies all that goes on. The effectual calling, and that's God's sovereign calling. No one comes to the Father unless he's called, uh, comes to the Lord Jesus and it, because unless he's called, and, and the Holy Spirit does that work. I shall endeavor, he said, as God help me, to keep from nothing back from you who have become my flock. And so we, we look at this, and, and the, the sovereignty of God, his absolute sovereignty over all of the aspects of salvation is the foundation on which all of this is rooted. And, and of course, that's because the Scripture teaches these very things. 
but a, an introduction by a fellow named Fred Zaspel on the, the, the doctrines of grace. And I've already read this first quotation for you. Um, I just I, I provided excerpts from an article that he provided. But he goes on to say, and this is the second to the last paragraph at the, at the bottom of, of page two, what Spurgeon is, is saying in, in, in his assertion that, that we're looking at the doctrines of grace is that the gospel offers salvation freely in Christ, um, freely. Uh, it's God's determined work. It's, it's his gift. Um, to say free, it, it does not mean that it's not costly. It's eminently costly, but it's, it's not something that is merited by any stretch uh, by the recipient. It's, it's a gift, as the scripture tells us. Salvation is a gift. It's unearned. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. And I bolded that because that's really a key point. And once we grasp that, we, we have used um, on many occasions the, the term monergism. And, okay, let me refresh what that means. Um, when we, let me contrast that. Something that is synergistic is something where there is a partnership, where there are two or more parties all pulling in the same direction to accomplish a common end. That could be true in business. It could be true in anything. And, but when we talk about salvation, salvation is not synergistic. Uh, salvation is monergistic. That means that God, from start to finish, has done all that is to be done. Uh, he determined salvation in eternity past for his own glory. He entered into a covenant with his son and with the spirit to accomplish redemption. Uh, he determined who would be the beneficiaries of redemption. His son purchased redemption. The spirit of God applies that redemption uh, by drawing the, the unsaved person into a, a giving him a new heart, a heart of flesh as opposed to a heart of stone, to use Ezekiel's words. Uh, and drawing them, giving them faith, which they did not have before, even faith as a gift, and then keeping them. Uh, even Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, John 10, 28 and 29. And so it, it literally is a work from start to finish that God does. Uh, he chooses, that's election. He draws, that's calling. He saves. That would be the, the nature of the atonement. What did what actually took place? And for me, and we'll, we'll get into this in more detail, when I was looking at the issue of limited atonement or definite atonement as opposed to unlimited atonement, the real issue is what's the design or the purpose of the atonement? Is it to render uh, man savable uh, or is it to actually accomplish redemption? And there's a, a book by John Murray that, that if you don't have it, you should, you should acquire this book and read it. It's called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. It's very readable. It's very succinct. But did, did God actually make uh, salvation potential, or did he actually procure and apply salvation for the men and women and boys and girls that he had determined from eternity past that he would draw into his own kingdom? And the answer is he actually procured salvation. He did not simply make it provisional or potential in nature. And he keeps. So from, very, from the eternity past to eternity future, it's all a work of God. It's all his doing. Anything less is, is not the gospel. So it is monergistic. There's no partnership here. As has often been said, and, and I'm not sure who was the first one to say this, but the only thing that we bring to our salvation is, is our sin, to our guilt, our fallenness, our culpability before holy God. That is absolutely true. That we bring, that we, we bring our need. 
uh, but, but beyond that, uh, we, we bring nothing. And even we would not recognize our fallenness. We would not recognize our need. We would not recognize our culpability before a holy God were it not for the Spirit of God bringing conviction of sin in our hearts. Uh, because there is none that seeks after God. No, no not one. Uh, there's none that is, is recognizing his or her culpability before a holy God unless the, the Holy Spirit grants illumination and regeneration. Illumination is understanding, and regeneration is the new birth, of being born from above. So he goes on to say that this idea lies on the face of Scripture. The, the Apostle Paul said that God saves in a way that leaves no room at all for men to congratulate themselves. That's, that's a very pivotal point. So I've... Top of page three of the notes, there's a, a, a very important section from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, Paul writes, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and he's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that, and that's a very important expression, that's, that's a purpose uh, expression, so that. Why has God done all of that? Because if you look at what has preceded that, if you were looking to populate your fraternity or sorority or company or whatever the case may be, you'd be looking for the most promising, the most talented, the most attractive people, right? That is not what God has done. Uh, there is none of us that is innately attractive to God. As a matter of fact, all of us are rebels. All of us are, are opposed to God. And so God has not chosen the most promising candidates. Uh, all of us are infinitely unpromising uh, before God. So that no man may boast uh, before God. No man may exalt himself or herself before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. That means you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, another purpose clause, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And you remember one of the Reformation solas, uh, Soli Dea Gloria, remember that one, to, to God alone be the glory. And, and if ever there was... A, a doctrine that needs to be properly apprehended for us to attribute all glory to God is the doctrine of salvation. And so if we understand the doctrine of salvation properly, the technical term for that would be soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, we would be attributing all of this to God. And why does he do it? So that he alone would be the recipient of all glory. That's why he does it. That's why he populates heaven, so that, that heaven can be full of, of those who will for all eternity give praise to his son and, and honor him and be the, the beneficiaries, the trophies of his grace. That's what God is doing in saving men and women and boys and girls. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, and, and that looks back to everything that has preceded it. And that not of yourselves. It, all of that, is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. First Corinthians 10.31. We've talked about this earlier. But Paul says, so therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all things, what, to the glory of God. And so who is the, 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 the proper recipient of all honor and glory? It's God alone. 
in the, and we, we, we went into some detail in the last time we gathered on, on the issue of glorifying God. And so the, the very purpose, the, the end result in all of this, in, in our salvation, is that God would put himself on display so that God would manifest his glory, so that God would champion his own greatness, so that he would be exalted in all things. That, that is absolutely the end of salvation, that God would receive glory, that he would be magnified, that he would be exalted, that he would be praised, to display, to, to manifest his glorious gra- uh, grace. 1 Corinthians one uh, thirty one. so that, we, we saw this just a moment ago, that... All boasting would not be in ourselves, but it would be in God himself. In Ephesians 2, um, so that in the ages to come, why, what is this all about? So that there would be uh, a display of God's greatness, that he might show, that he might manifest, that he might evidence, that he might display the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So all of this is to bring honor to himself, uh, to God himself. And, and so when we speak about the, the good news, and my uh, proofreader missed a point here, uh, but uh, it, would be, uh, it would not be very good news to hear that God would save us if he required anything of us. So you're, you're, this ellipsis here, there should be if he required or demanded anything of us. Uh, there's nothing that we can contribute. Uh, there's nothing that we add. There's nothing that we can offer uh, to him. We, we shudder to think of any condition laid upon us as a prerequisite for salvation. Uh, none of us need to qualify for salvation. None of us really we, we, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's true. Uh, we're going to talk about that. But who is, it, who is it that enables us to believe? God enables us to believe. And this was a point, we'll, we'll delve into this, when we get into the, the, all right, no, no fire. Okay. Um, yeah, so if God does not save us freely, we know that we will not be saved at all. Okay. Um, now. A number of ways in which this, the simplicity of all of this has gone off in a different direction. There are many examples uh, in, in some of these. Number one, uh, there are those who would contend uh, that it is man and not God who is the determining party in salvation. And this goes to the issue of so-called free will, um, our capacity to determine how we are going to respond to the gospel. Um, we have a will, our, but uh, the, our will is conditioned by our nature. And our nature before regeneration is, is bent um, entirely against being subservient to God. Uh, so who is it that determines that we will be saved? There would be those that would be that would say that it's it's all up to us. That is that is not what the Bible teaches. Then the second point is is that our condition. We're working on it back there. Uh, his condition is one of sin, but his sinfulness is not such that it renders him incapable of choosing God. Now, what this gets to, this is an issue in historical theology. Uh, you may have heard the term semi-Pelagianism. If you haven't heard that, now you've heard it. 
Um, but there was a French monk by the name of Cassian, and uh, he was in the 5th century, who you know, took what Augustine had taught about the, the sovereignty of God, and, and he, uh, he embraced parts of it, um, but he, he said essentially that, 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 that man and God have to cooperate in salvation, that there has to be this, that there could be an initiative on God's part, an initiative, an impetus, but then man has to uh, sort of contribute to that or engage in that, and so it, it's synergistic. And, and that is semi-Pelagianism. It goes to the issue of how radical was the fall. And, and that's really a very pivotal issue. When we get into the first doctrine of grace, T, total depravity, total inability, it's very important that we understand this because we, that will go to the, what took place in the fall in Genesis 3. And, and Paul tells us in Romans 5.12 that, that through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. And that man is Adam. And as a result, as, we, as Adam's lineage, he is our federal head. As Adam's lineage, we all sinned in Adam, and we all became corrupted in Adam. And so even though we weren't physically present in the garden, um, we were corrupted. Our nature is corrupted. Uh, our, we, we have these, these, not only a sin nature, but, but we are dead in sin. We are spiritually unable to respond to the gospel. And so once we understand how radical was the fall, how radical were the implications of the fall, then we'll understand that there's nothing in us that, that has the ability to respond to the gospel unless God does a saving work in us first. And so we, we get at, this gets to the issue of total inability or, or the, the impact of the, the fall. At the top of page 4, some uh, affirm that what determines a man's salvation uh, is that man must make uh, the, the move. If he will turn to God, then God will choose to save him, but not unless. And, and so this, again, goes to this issue of there would be those, and it, and it generally falls within the Arminian camp, that there is something called prevenient grace, that God sort of gives an impetus, uh, a, a, a boost, um, and then, but then man, on his own initiative, responds to that, and, and, and then appropriates that. And so it is this cooperative effort uh, where man and God are jointly coming to a point where they're embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that is a very compromised view of what happened in the fall. It's, it's a compromised view of total inability. And, and so that's the, the problem there. At the root of all of this um, that is, is a sense somehow... Man wants to have a hand in his salvation. Man wants to somehow appropriate part of the credit for what God has done. That's really at the bottom of what's taking place, is that, it, it, that there are those who are reluctant to acknowledge that God has done all of it and that I haven't done anything other than bring my guilt and my fallenness to the cross. And it, it, there is this, this part of humanity that still wants to somehow hold on to some degree of autonomy, some degree of, of what some theologians have called an island of righteousness. There's this aspect of even though we're, we're fallen, that there is this aspect in us that's just not quite lost yet. And, and it all, they, once you go down that path, you, you departed from, from the biblical teaching about how corrupt we truly are. And, and we, we will never understand 
how grateful we must be to God for our salvation as long as we, we fail to understand how radical our need was, how fallen we truly are. And then, moreover, this previous drawing that God must do, he does equally for all, uh, leaving the final choice to the individual. Well, that obviously undermines uh, unconditional election. If, if, if God is drawing everybody, then, and, and it undermines efficacious grace. If, you, if God is drawing everybody but not all come, then, then God is impotent. God is not able to accomplish what he really wants to do. If God draws and somehow I, I say no to that, then what kind of a, what am I saying about the nature of God? That, he, that I'm saying that he's impotent. I'm saying that he's not able to, to completely accomplish the saving work. He, he's calling me, but I'm saying no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. No, when God calls, and this was another point in, in my own personal development when I understood that, a call is not an invitation. When you get a, a, a summons, let's say, and I know none of you violate the traffic laws, but if you were to do that, you would get what's called a summons. And, and it, would be, it would not be an invitation to, to come and appear before the court. If you, if you refuse to do that, there's implications associated with that. You would be held in contempt of court. But, but you would not get a, a, a nice little invitation. If, if you're able to make it, I hope you can come. That, that's not the nature of, of God's call. When God calls, you come. It's, 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 there's nothing that is left to human initiative at that point. It is entirely God's work. So then further, the atonement of Christ, uh, some would teach, is intended to do this, the same thing for all men everywhere without exception. Christ on the cross um, did his part to save everyone, but it's man who makes the final decision. Uh, we've already talked about the problems with that. And then finally, some would say once that a man has, has chosen God and becomes a Christian, he may choose not to be a Christian and may eventually fall away. That actually is the, the only logical implication of, under, of misunderstanding the doctrines of grace. If somehow we have contributed to our salvation, then there is this fatal vulnerability in all of our souls. Guess what? If, if my salvation is somehow contingent on my ability to respond or, or to, to, to stay saved, I'm lost, and so are you. None of us can, can hold on to God with our own ability. None of us can, can secure our own standing before God. It is God that keeps us. It is God that purchased us. Paul says that we, you are not your own. First Corinthians 6, you have been bought with a price. So if we have been bought with a price, then to whom do we belong? We belong to God. He has ransomed us. He has redeemed us. He has bought us out of the, 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 the slave market of sin, that we might be his, that we are his. He has, he's paid the, the price for us. Um, and, and so all of that work is irreversible. But once we fail to understand that and we somehow view uh, election as conditional or uh, God's salvation as somehow provisional but not entirely actual uh, or the, the, any of these other things, then, then we really have no basis for eternal security. And, and I think we need to, to understand that. At least that's, that's my, my conviction. Uh, so in all of this, there's one central tenet. This is the point. May I, the, the, all of this being these these mistaken views that preceded it, that man is the controlling party in salvation. That's, that, that will lead to a, a, a plethora of problems. If we, if we believe that we are the controlling party in salvation, we, we will not be holding the doctrines of grace. 
So what Spurgeon was emphasizing when he started, and I gave this quotation earlier, was that God has not left the matter with us. He's not somehow allowed us to be a contributor in this process. It is God and not man who makes the difference. God makes the choice, not man. Man is so ruined by sin that he is unable to choose God. That's total inability. That's what took place in the fall. God does the drawing. That's efficacious grace. That is the irresistible call. He goes before and brings to himself the the sinner to Christ. Uh, It's the very purpose of Christ's death to save those whom the Father has chosen. That's the design of the atonement. That's definite atonement. That's particular redemption. And having saved them, God keeps them and will never allow them to stray so far as to fall into condemnation. That is the preservation of the saints. That's the perseverance of the saints. And so all of this from start to finish, from beginning to end, is, is a work of God. Jonah, salvation is from the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 1, by his doing you were in Christ Jesus. Now, some of this I'm just in the interest of time. I'm, I'm just going to, to skip over this introduction and I'm going to go to the next page and just talk about some of the more um, extensive historical background. But Martin Luther, uh, in his 95 Theses in 1517, this is when he posted his 95 Theses on the, the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And his concern, his objective, by the way, at that point, was he was primarily concerned about the, the sale of indulgences. The sale of indulgences was, was a Roman Catholic practice to somehow mitigate time in purgatory. Uh, and, and essentially, it was a way to finance the building of churches. That's really what it was all about. It was, it was a capital campaign. But it was under the guise of somehow mitigating the, the amount of time you'd have to spend in purgatory. But he was greatly concerned about the impact of this, the, the Roman Catholic false doctrine on salvation with the spiritual life of his parishioners. He, he saw they had no security. And guess what? They shouldn't have any security. The, 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 the Catholic Church was teaching, and, and we've talked about this earlier, that he who holds justification by faith alone is, and, and by their own term, anathema, accursed, damned. That's the, the, that was 15, 1547, the, the Council of Trent. It was, it's been reaffirmed over and over. That is their point of view. Justification by faith alone is a damnable perversion, according to the Roman Catholic doctrine. And so he began to, by God's illumination, to understand what does the Scripture say about salvation. And once he understood justification by faith, then all of the Scripture opened up and we had the beginning of of the Reformation. And it was a rediscovery of what the Scripture had taught. There was nothing new. It was was an unearthing of what had been hidden by centuries of corruption. And, and he rediscovered this and began to put it on display, and suddenly people understood the gospel again. Well, John Calvin was eight years old when, when all of that took place, and, and he was a, a, a Frenchman by birth, but he, um, he brought forth what's called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and that, that helped to establish a lot of, of good teaching along the way. And then there was a fellow by the name of Arminius, um, and we get the, the term Arminian from that. But in the 1600s, he had some followers uh, after he died uh, that were actually teaching in Dutch seminaries and were, were beginning to veer off from the Reformed teaching on the doctrine of salvation. 
Uh, and, and so this is what happens in, in, in seminaries sometimes. There are those who begin to veer off. They begin to no longer hold to the official position of the school. And, and they begin to attract certain people to themselves. And that's exactly what took place in Holland. And there were these men who were called the Remonstrants. Uh, they, they took exception to the Belgic Confession. The Belgic Confession is a very solid confession. And then, so then they began to assert all of these Armenian doctrines uh, in, these, in these Dutch seminaries. And then the issue in 1618, 1619, there was a, a Synod of Dort, and you may have heard the Canons of Dort. Um, that's, that's where the so-called uh, TULIP acronym came from. And not surprisingly in Holland, it's a, a, good, a good flower TULIP, uh, but, that's, but that's what we use. So this was where this actually came from. Uh, but the, but that's the, I wanted to give you at least a flyover, a very quick introduction to some of these, these issues that took place uh, in church history. Let me, uh, let me just move over uh, in the interest of time to page 7. And uh, Steve Lawson has a summary of the doctrines of grace. And, and everything that we're going to touch on very briefly in, the, in this little article by Steve Lawson we're going to unpack. We're going to take at least one lesson, Lord willing, on each of these five uh, points, uh, these, these uh, T-U-L-I-P. We're, we're going to take at least one, one class on, on each one. Uh, but not surprisingly, Lawson is making the point that every aspect of salvation is from God, entirely dependent on God. The only contribution that we make is the sin that was laid on Jesus Christ at the cross. And then he says, and this is really helpful, that salvation is God-determined, that's election, God-purchased, that's the design of the atonement, God-applied, that's uh, the effectual calling, and God-secured, that's the preservation of the saints. From start to finish, it's entirely a work of God. And then he goes on to point out in the next paragraph that, that the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have each... And this should not surprise us. God himself, there are three persons in the Godhead, but they have one will. And, and so there's complete agreement in what takes place. Each member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, has a part to play in redemption, and they're all working to the same end. And then he touches briefly on total depravity or total inability. And you can read this if you if it's your own convenience. But I've highlighted what I think are some of the, uh, the key points. Uh, apart from grace, our minds are darkened by sin, unable to understand the truth. Our hearts are defiled, unable to love the truth. Our bodies are dying, progressing to physical death. Our wills are dead, unable to choose the good. Moral inability to, pr- to please God plagues every person from their entrance into the world. In their unregenerate state, no one seeks after God. No one is capable of doing good. All are under the curse of the law. And, and so that's, that's a snapshot of what total inability is, is all about. Unconditional election. Um, what, what's being said here, and again, this is simply an overview. I'm just kind of laying out just in, in, in broad terms what we'll be unpacking in, in weeks to come. By unconditional, it, it's, it, there are the, it, what we're saying is that God has not chosen um, who will be the beneficiaries of salvation by virtue of his omniscience, by his knowing ahead of time who would respond. So I've heard that, and maybe you've heard that as well. That is not what the Bible teaches. 
The scripture teaches that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians teaches us that, Ephesians 1. Um, God did not choose man and women and boys and girls for salvation because of his foreknowledge in a precognitive, precognitive standpoint where he knows the future ahead of time. The scripture does talk about foreknowledge, but that's because he's determining the future ahead of time. That's the, the biblical view of foreknowledge. When we're talking about foreknowledge in an Arminian sense, is that God is looking down the so-called tunnel of time. You've heard this expression, and he sees, okay, then, then you know, this person's going to be respond to the gospel. This person has some inherent promise to them. This person's a good candidate. I can see a willingness on this person's part. That, that's total, uh, totally wrong. That, that is not what the Scripture teaches. So unconditional election means that there's nothing inherent in us that would prompt God to save us, nor did he look down the so-called tunnel of time and look to what we would do and then make his choice contingent upon that. Uh, the, the second paragraph in this section, I think, is very helpful. Uh, the father gave the elect uh, to, be, uh, to his son to be his bride. Each one chosen was predestined by the father to be conformed to the image of his son, and to sing his praises forever. The Father commissioned his Son to enter the world and lay down his life to save those chosen ones. The Father commissioned the Spirit to bring the same elect ones to faith in Christ. And so you can see that what what we will be teaching is that this triune work of God, complete in concert, the plan made in eternity past, the election is is part of God's decree. God's decree is is eternal purpose. Um, it brings glory to him. Uh, it, is, it is rooted in his unconditional choice uh, to bring uh, to honor to him, to glorify his name, to magnify him. Definite atonement. What's the purpose of the atonement? Did, did Jesus Christ die on the cross to make man savable, to provide a, a footing for him to be saved, which would be somehow appropriated by man based on his choice? Or did God actually procure salvation, that that Jesus Christ actually purchased the salvation of his elect uh, on the cross? And the answer is the second. God actually purchased salvation. He actually secured salvation. He didn't make it just provisional or potential. He actually purchased it. And and so there's this, uh, in this article here, that what Lawson is saying is is that on the cross, Jesus bore the unmitigated wrath of the Father, of the Father for the sins of his people. That's propitiation, 1 John 2, 2. In his vicarious death, the Father transferred to the Son all the sins of those who would ever believe to him. That's imputation. That's, that's, the, the Father laid the sins of the elect upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That's his passive obedience. Jesus died a substitutionary death in the place of God's elect. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, we have to be careful what we mean by all. If, 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 if we mean that God saved all, then all would be saved. If, if, we, if we believe that, that all without exception, then suddenly we're in universalism, and that's not what the Bible teaches. When we, that we believe that God laid on him the iniquity of all without Distinction, not all without exception. Because if Jesus bore the sins of all without exception, then all would be saved. Because there would be no double jeopardy. If Jesus paid the debt, and, and somehow it was a provisional salvation, and, and I reject that, and I'm condemned, and I go to hell, 
then that's double jeopardy. Jesus has paid for it, and then suddenly I'm paying for it? That, that's, that's not consistent with the righteous character of God. So when, when Christ bore the, the penalty of, of those on the cross, he truly paid their penalty. He, he, he secured their salvation. And then atop of page 9, um, Jesus' death did not merely make all mankind potentially savable. Uh, and that's, I think we've established that point. Uh, effectual calling. Uh, this is the, the, the God's summons. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16, verses 8 uh, through 11. Um, this is the Holy Spirit granting new life. This is the, the Holy Spirit uh, bringing us, compelling us uh, to salvation. Sometimes it's called irresistible grace. Sometimes it's called efficacious grace. Uh, but in any event, whether, regardless of what, we, what term we attach to it, it is that work of the Spirit drawing the, the elect unto salvation, where they, they will respond, granting them a new, new heart so that they will be born from above. All of that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And persevering grace, once converted, every believer is kept eternally secure by all three persons of the Trinity, all whom the God the Father foreknew, and, and again, it's important that we understand foreknew does not mean just looking down and, and, and seeing the future and then responding to that. It's setting his love upon his elect from eternity past and predestining, and he, he will glorify. No believer will drop out or fall away. Every believer is firmly held by the sovereign hands of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, never to be lost. So this is just a, uh, an overview uh, for you. Now, in, in your notes, you've got some appendices. You've got uh, John Piper gave a seminar on so-called Calvinism, and you can, you can look at just some of the points there. And then a fellow named Brian Nadget for um, a fellow that I know up at Puritan Reform Seminary, has a very helpful article upon how do these doctrines impact the Puritans in their own spiritual lives? And you can, you can look at that at your convenience. The takeaway, salvation is all of God, and it is for his glory. It is, it is something that he uh, determined from eternity past. We are the beneficiaries of his majestic grace. Uh, he, is, he has designed, purposed salvation, purchased salvation, applied salvation, and, and he keeps those for whom he has saved. Uh, and, and so from start to finish, it is entirely a, a work of God. And, and so our only appropriate response to that is to say to God alone, be glory. Uh, and, and that is why he, he, he entered into this great saving work. Are we the beneficiaries of that? Absolutely. Will we rejoice in heaven for all eternity, uh, casting our crowns before the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Uh, but but the, what God has done is is something that He initiated, and it and it brings all honor, all praise um, uh, to Him and to Him alone. So, uh, an overview, a, a quick overview, but uh, but I wanted to at least give you uh, an idea of the landscape, so that when we take each of these five points, you'll you'll have a sense of of where we're going. So, if you have questions, come and I'll try my best to address those for you.